0: I walked into that courtroom in Norman, and he was sitting right there, and I was, you know, a foot away from him and saw his face, I just, oh God.
1: Welcome back to Uncovered, the Lover's Lane Murders. I'm Kayla Branch. At the end of episode 4, police called Frank Gilly at work and told him to hurry home. When he arrived, he was arrested. Here, Linda Adams, the sister of Cheryl Benham, is describing the first time she had come in contact with Frank Gilley, the man she believes killed her sister and her date, David Sloan, 21 years earlier.
0: I thought, now I've seen you, and now you've seen me.
1: Ballistics tests had come back negative for guns collected from a search of Gilley's home in November 1990, when officers found a shot-off shotgun and tried to connect it with the murders of David and Cheryl. The sawed-off shotgun allowed them to arrest him for an illegal weapons charge, but eventually he was released to go home in DeSoto, Texas. In the following months, officers deliberated how best to pin Gilly down for the murders. They felt the options were running slim, until February
2: 1991. There were a bunch of them that kind of, they all sat there and, and kind of kicked it around and decided that they weren't going to go from the restaurant. They wanted to convene a grand jury, which... To me, it was very dis- disappointing because I'm a go get him, arrest him
1: kind of guy. That's David Pirro, the lead case investigator for the Norman Police Department in the 1990s. When it was decided the case would once again be brought to a grand jury in February 1991, the trajectory looked similar to when the murders were first investigated in the 1970s. A team of investigators followed Gilly, arrested him for a related but not directly connected charge, and then a grand jury determines whether he could stand trial. And we started to hear this idea that the Norman police were covering themselves and trying to make up for the public outcry against them 20 years earlier.
2: It's bad enough in a, in a normal murder case. I mean, we, you know, we take every murder seriously. But if there's a dirty cop somewhere, that looks bad on all of us. And so we're not letting that go. We're just, you just don't let it go. If this guy, if this guy was a cop and he did this stuff, then that, you know, that was good enough for me to go after him with everything I had.
1: Mike Brake, the reporter who covered the case in its earlier days, said the same thing.
3: Uh, The second one, the the guys at Norman Police Department really wanted to solve the darn thing. Because those guys weren't even policemen when this thing happened. They were younger detectives, and they knew that it was kind of like a festering sore. You know, Dave Perrow and some of those guys, they really wanted to, to go after it.
1: Along with the drive NPD felt to clear its name, the clock was ticking. Two decades had gone by, and the investigators weren't going to gather much more than they already had. Ken Jacobson, the 1970s OSBI investigator, said.
4: Physical evidence, or evidence that's required to sustain a murder conviction, we didn't have it. We knew going in there we didn't have it. But the the DA at that time was adamant that that the case was going to go to trial with what we had because the case wasn't improved. You know, witnesses were dying, people were moving, or losing track of them. Um, it will not going get any better.
1: Right.
4: Good
1: Eventually, Norman prosecutors declared they would be seeking the death penalty for Gilly due to the period of torture and terror David and Cheryl endured while being locked alive in the trunk. David was shot 11 times and Cheryl 14. Most of these shots were in the upper body and head. And on March 1st, 1991, after roughly a month of testimony and deliberation, the second Cleveland County grand jury looking into Gilly returned an indictment. The charges? One count of perjury, two counts of first-degree murder. Four days later, Piro and other officers arrested Gilly at the auto parts store where he worked and booked him once again into the Dallas County Jail. A months-long extradition fight began, ending in May 1991, with Gilly being brought to the Cleveland County Jail. In July, a hearing was held to determine whether the case had enough evidence to go to trial. It would be the public's first look at new details and theories regarding the case. The first full day of the July hearing had testimony from seven witnesses, including Gilly's parents, a former wife, and the Norman police chief from the 1970s, Bill Hensley. Gilly's parents testified that he was at his home the night of the murders, but his former wife said she couldn't confirm where he was that night. Hensley said he fired Gilly a few days after the murders because of the tip that Gilly liked to harass couples on lovers' lanes, but also said he had never seen any physical evidence to this day that ties Gilly to the crime.
4: One of the comments that Hensley made was, you know, he didn't have enough power to uh, influence a murder investigation. And Which, you know, the police chief, if he doesn't have enough power to influence, who's going to?
1: A few days in, the couples that identified Gilly in 1970 as the man who harassed them on Lover's Lanes told the grand jury Gilly had mentioned the murders of David and Cheryl to them when he had approached their cars. Jacobson also testified. He spoke of how Gilly admitted to him he did know David before the murders, though Gilly previously testified he had never met David. Other officers also took the stand, saying Gilly kept several guns in his work locker at the police department, one of which was a 22 caliber rifle with a hexagon barrel, the specific caliber of weapon used in the murders. Pirro also testified, noting that almost all of the evidence from the crime scene had disappeared, except one bullet casing. Most of these testimonies didn't come as a shock to those intimately involved with the case. Gilly's attorney, Robert Perrine, said most of the evidence was not conclusive. On the last day of the pretrial, one of the most interesting pieces of evidence emerged, though it was never corroborated, when a new witness was called to the stand. W. E. Jocelyn, a worker on the Norman dairy farm owned by Charles Haynes in Western Norman, said he arrived at the property, which has a view of the Lover's Lane where David and Cheryl were killed at about 3 a.m. to go to work on Mother's Day, 1970. As he was leaving the barn about 7 a.m., he saw two men standing next to two parked cars. Shortly afterward, he heard gunshots. The next day, after testimony from 33 witnesses and 21 years since the murders, District Judge Patricia Heron ruled Gilly would stand trial in Cleveland County for the murders of David Sloan and Cheryl Benham
2: right there. And you know what, he just sat, he sat there quietly um, at the defense table the entire time. Rarely did he make any kind of gestures that would uh, draw any interest at all. He he was, he was just, he was the defendant. He was quiet and he didn't do anything to call attention
1: to himself. That's Chip Minty, a reporter at The Oklahoman who covered the trial, describing Gilly's demeanor on October 21st, 1991, as jurors were picked. Two days later, testimony began. Cheryl's dad, Ben Benham, testified, answering questions on what it was like to file a missing persons report for his daughter. A woman who was a clerk for NPD in 1970 said Gilly was in the office around 3.30 a.m. Sunday within a few hours of the murders and acted unusual. Sloane's ex-girlfriend, who helped find the car after Ben Benham reported his daughter missing, told the jury she drove to the Lover's Lane area and happened upon the car, but left and reported it to police when she realized there was blood in the front seat and she smelled what she described in news articles as, the smell of death. The medical examiner explained in detail how Dave and Cheryl died, both shot over ten times, including bullets fired directly into each of their eyes. Two of Gilly's ex-wives testified saying he never mentioned to them his work in Norman as a police officer, though they knew of his work in Amarillo. A daughter of an ex-wife said Gilly told her he had killed someone and kept a diary of old cases with pictures of dead bodies. Jacobson pointed to the unusual handling of the case and what he considered obstruction that interfered with the investigation. Hensley said he thought Gilly was the target of a hate plot and a smear campaign. The defense strategy was one of continual questioning. Perrine put in dozens of requests, ranging from declaring a mistrial to requesting that words like grotesque not be allowed in the courtroom. Rereading articles and court documents, it's clear he challenged every step of the trial. He questioned witnesses intensely, returning again and again to the lack of physical evidence and the 20-year gap between the murders and the trial that might affect recollections of what happened.
2: And his job was to um, to cast you know some kind of doubt
1: you right. know, on
2: on the jury's mind about whether you know the the, the validity of these claims. Um, any kind of doubt that he could that he could create was important to him. And I think he did use time as as an ally um, to just cast some doubt on on um, uh, on the the allegations that were made and the accuracy of the allegations and the accuracy of the witness recollection.
1: Perrine also focused on technicalities, like Gilly not being read his Miranda rights at certain points or the lawfulness of using testimony from witnesses who had died before the trial started. And then, on the last full day of trial, on Friday, November 8th, Perrine put Gilly on the stand. Gilly said he was not guilty. He spoke of other things he usually did on weekends, like playing card games with friends. He maintained that his wife at the time of the murders was with him before he started his night shift, though she denied it. Gilly said he had never met Sloan. He brought up the likelihood that Butch Green, his former partner who died a year after the murders, was the real potential suspect. Soon after he testified, the jury began deliberations. Brake and Jacobson had personal theories they shared with me on exactly what happened the night of the murders. They believe the incident started before Gilly's NPD shift started around midnight, Saturday.
4: David Sloan was from Amarillo. And when they tried Gilly on his aggravated assault out there, in fact, the sheriff told me, he said, when they tried him, they tried it like a murder case, because it's a horrible thing for the, you know, law enforcement officer to be accused of aggravated assault. They said Gilly's picture's in the papers, on TV, you know, Amarillo's not that big a town. And, uh, What we think happened is Sloan and Denham were up uh, on the Lover's Lane, and and Gilly uh, approached them and probably came up to David Sloan, his side of the car anyway, and uh, said, I'm the sheriff of Cleveland County, (coughs) uh, probably made David get out, talk to him, and uh, we think David recognized him from that trial in there,
3: Marilla. Here's here's it's what's dying. interesting about the autopsy reports that tell told me at the time how it all came mm-hmm. uh, Keep in mind that they had been at a fraternity party
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, at the Sigma Alpha Epsilon house, and fraternity parties being always what they were, I suspect David probably had, had a few beers. They, they
4: tell us David was a hothead, and. and uh, you know, he, David said, you're not the sheriff, I know who you are, you're Frank Gilly.
3: So what I think happened is they stopped there to make some whooping. And I think maybe Sherry was already undressed, mm-hmm. maybe when Gilly approached. Now he's not working at this time. He probably has a 22 pistol. Mm-hmm. And I think he started his lover's lane harassment. And I think David recognized him and said something like, you son of a bitch, you're, you're not a real cop. I remember you from Amarillo you got in trouble out there.
4: David had a pool cue by cut off pool cue by the driver's door under the seat and his friends tell us that that's the first thing he'd drag out if there was gonna be any trouble Yeah. and uh, that pool cue was over on the passenger side in the front seat on the floor and it was completely wiped clean didn't have anybody's fingerprints on it.
3: So I think Someone no grabbed that pool cue handle and said, I'll kick your ass. Mm-hmm. And Gilly shot him mm-hmm. with a handgun. When you read David's autopsy report, you find massive right hemothorax. A lot mm-hmm. of blood and congestion in the right lung. Okay. From a wound through the lung. Now, you don't die right away from a wound through the lung, usually, mm-hmm. unless there's a major artery hit. Mm-hmm. What happens is you have blood seepage into the lung. Came out of that
4: pool cue and- Frank had to shoot him a couple of times. Frank, I don't think he intended to shoot anybody. <clears throat> he just wanted, you know, to mm-hmm. do his thing. And but Frank and David were both described to us as hot And you know, you mm-hmm. put two hotheads heads together. I think Frank, his only choice was to shoot him and mm-hmm. uh, and to protect himself. And then Sherry, you know, probably just did whatever he wanted her to do.
3: Sherry had abrasions on her right jaw and cheek. I think while he was stuck in the trunk, he had to slug her a couple of times. I don't think she was shot at that point. I think he was, but was not dying, not dead, maybe not even dying. And they're locking the trunk now. What are they going to do? And they're hoping maybe he's just gone away, and maybe somebody will rescue him or find him, and then he comes back. I think at this point he's just got a little twenty-two pistol. He might have fired most of the ammunition from it already, and he doesn't have the firepower to kill them both. And gets the rifle, which is gonna be a high capacity rifle. Those twenty rifles, you know, I don't even know if you know much about guns, but a 20 rifle might carry might have a magazine of twenty rounds or more. So it's got a lot of firepower. And I think he probably was out there at like in his in the p- private car around 11, 11.30 for the first encounter. And then goes on duty like at midnight. And comes back in the police car to finish it And you notice there was a couple of bullet holes in the fenders of the car well, I think when he came back he stood back and fired a couple of rounds at the side of the car to see if he, they were still in there and alive, and he mm-hmm. probably heard him, oh, you know, okay, pop the trunk, start killing. But there just there is no other perpetrator that makes any sense at all,
4: none. When you get in a situation like that, you never really think you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. You know, you think you're gonna get out of this, and, and you're gonna go to class the next day or go to work or whatever you do, you know, Frank, from, from the time David got out, and, and it was apparent that, that he did recognize him, both from Amarillo, I mean, what are the chances of that happening?
5: The
1: jurors came back Monday, November 11th, with a verdict. Splashed along the front pages of newspapers and TV station headlines were two words, not guilty.
2: So what, what we had done, in, in, in retrospect, it was probably a mistake um we announced that we were going to go for the death penalty on on those cases because of the circumstances and we think that was sort of a mistake because of what the jurors said in some of their questionnaires i remember it they thought he was guilty but after 20 years you know he's sitting there Dave and Cheryl have been dead for 20 years, you know, we got pictures of them, but that's it, you know, so um, after 20 years, they couldn't see putting a guy to death, you know, so I think that helped cloud their, their decision, was the fact that they, even though they, they they thought he was guilty, a good percentage of them thought he was guilty, and probably enough to convict, they just couldn't get, couldn't get past the death
3: penalty portion of it. I think there were people in that jury who said, I believe he did it. But I cannot send him to the electric chair or the gurney, you know, uh, on the basis of almost. When Norman P.D. first contacted me back then and said they were going to try to revitalize the case. And, and, and they started running through all the material again and everything. I remember sitting down there in the homicide office in of Norman, the detective bureau, with this file between the mm-hmm. sitting on the desk between us saying, I, it's great what you guys are doing, but I don't think you can nail him. The verdict was inevitable you think? In my opinion, because there was not a hard piece of evidence to put him on the trigger. You know, there was every bit of circumstantial case you could ever want to the point of, of, you know, you have to ask who else in the world could have done it. But there was nothing, one thing that the jury could go into that jury room and say, piece of evidence A says Frank Gilly killed those kids on that night. It just wasn't there. I can't quarrel with the jury even though I hated to see it turn out the way.
1: There was plenty of evidence in the case right after the murders happened that today would have most likely garnered a conviction through DNA testing, said Jordan Salarizano, the public information officer at the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. DNA testing began right around the time this case was reopened for trial. But when it was discovered that almost all of the evidence had disappeared, it didn't matter. Solarizano said protocols for handling evidence have become much more strict in the last 50 years, every step being documented in a complex computer program. Definitely more rules in place. Everything is pretty well documented. Mm -hmm. It's seized, it's packaged up, it's every single step we take in our evidence, you know, transfer or testing or anything is logged in a computer system. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can get on a computer, our, our little system, and see. Uh, where something is. So mm-hmm. for something to go missing, know. then of course you would have another you know, person transferring the evidence, or the criminalist that has the evidence. So if something goes missing, it would be pretty easy to go in there and pinpoint, okay, no, you had this last, where is mm-hmm. it? The Norman Police Department also changed its evidence protocols, said Sarah Jensen, the public information officer for NPD.
5: And evidence management is like a totally different ball game in the sense of how um, we now use a locker system, um, Not anyone can just walk into property custody. Uh, Everything is labeled and stored and organized. It's such a different um, ballgame. So a lot of those concerns about obstruction, and evidence, um, we as an agency have put a lot of safeguards into place to ensure um, that those things are not happening and that there is a trail. And they take that very seriously because they testify to that in court as to who exactly has touched that piece of property, seen it, analyzed it. When it left to go to OSBI, when it returned, um, those type that, those type of safeguards are in place. And so I think in this case, at least from what I've been able to read about it, there were a lot of questions about things disappearing or not being there, or maybe being altered. Um, and those things would be extremely difficult to occur today just based on the procedures that are in place.
1: And NPD responded to public criticism of its officers over the years, said Major Kevin Foster. Not only does the department interact with the Norman community on a more regular basis, but the hiring protocols for officers have completely changed.
6: One, we have basic requirements of age, uh, certain convictions you can't have to get hired at a police department. Plus, the chief adds some automatic disqualifiers to that on drug usage, domestic uh, issues that you may have that will automatically disqualify you from our process. Uh, I think when you ask around of other places, <clears throat> or just other people that are in this profession, when they talk about getting hired at Norman, you'll learn that our process is a lot harder and a lot more scrutinizing than a lot of places. We still do psychological testing, we still do polygraph examinations, we still do a complete background on these people, talking to everybody, looking at everything, that, every issue they've had, including internal affairs investigations at the current agencies they're with, talking to officers that they work with at those agencies also, and friends, neighbors, and things to see if anything else comes up. So if you come across something at a department where something may have been tried to be swept under the rug because the department didn't want to look bad, the current chief or sheriff didn't want to look bad, for whatever reason you may think that happens, we talked to more than just that agency to try to uncover those things and those issues. Such as in this case, in the issue he had in Amarillo.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that that was kind of a change, that, that had, you know, you've know, you got this po- um, policy that's a lot stronger than some other places, You know, why, why that change?
6: It, it's just due to the public pressures on things and us re-looking at things and listening to the public going, oh yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. That, that would be a lot better. Yeah, we should do that. It's not that we know everything. And the, the other side of that is us hearing it, but it's that the public is coming to us and telling us. Because in the past, a lot of people didn't... It didn't affect them, they didn't care. Or, if it was affecting them, they was too afraid to come to the police. Because they was like, I'll just be in more trouble if I mm-hmm. try to go tell them they're doing something wrong. It's just a willingness to listen <clears throat> and to take action on those things.
1: The lost evidence and the hiring of Gilly in the first place played a major role in the Benham Sloan case, but so did the alleged obstruction by the various law enforcement agencies.
6: Back then, very a lot more of that stuff would have went on of who's who and what do I need to do to keep my job or to get that promotion. Mm-hmm. So there's checks and balances to make sure the stuff isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly a lot more nowadays than there probably was back in the 1970s.
1: Many of the individuals named in our investigation died within 10 or 15 years of the case going to trial. Hensley never did get his promotion to be the director of the OSBI. He moved to Edmond as an administrator for the Edmond Police Department and died in May of 1999. Pirro retired in 2004 and moved to Florida where he spends time scuba diving. He told me that he still keeps an eye out for talk of the murders, mentioning in particular a message board where he saw people talking about the case.
2: You can see some of the, I guess, the, the resentment mm-hmm. from people who are now adults still going back through their college days and and being really critical on uh, on the you know on the police and and then he said something about you know well you couldn't even convict them again or something like that. And it, some guy said that to me and I, I kind of went off on him a little
1: bit. But Brake lives in Oklahoma City, working part-time as a public information officer for the OKC County Commissioner's office.
3: Wish we could have put the the electric chair.
1: Linda lives in Oklahoma City and has multiple children of her own. She's a grandmother too, visiting her grandchildren as they graduate from college and get driver's licenses, close to the same age Cheryl was when she died. And after almost 50 years, she said the pain is more manageable.
0: See, I, I know justice was not served. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the hardest things I have ever done in my life because every day I would drive from Oklahoma City, clear to Norman, to the courthouse. To, and, you know, Kayla, what I heard in that has just even, even proved to me more and more that he did do this.
1: Cheryl's mom died in 1995
2: and her dad in 2001. It's always a huge letdown, but yeah, I mean, because her her parents were there, um, I got to know her parents very well. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really hard for them when we told them we were reopening the case again because it, it had been so long, and they had sort of accepted the fact as much as they could. You know, they were sort of at peace at least a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then here we come, and we're, we're visiting it again, and it's it's making the news again. And, and so, at the end, it was another bitter disappointment for him. But
1: Frank Gilly lived in Texas, working odd jobs until he died in March of 2002, according to the Amarillo Globe News. We were told he had been living in a nursing home. Not, not
0: be Okay. Good. Fine. Huh. You know. I hope he died a very low. They it, he. They said he had no family, no visitor. I hope he did not. Hope he died alone at a very painful death. That's what I wish. Oh, hey. Ten years ago. Fifth. It was so hard for me. I fall. I would. Yeah. I don't now. No. I'm. I'm. I can talk about it now. I can. Mm
1: -hmm. And why do you think that is? What do you think was the change there?
0: Oh, I don't know how to explain that. Uh, I think before, when it was brought up, I still hurt so bad. And my emotions, I couldn't talk about because of my emotions. I mean, I just couldn't. Now, and now... I can talk about it without breaking down and crying. Now I'm almost like, not, not mad. I don't want to use that word, but I'm like, damn, I wish they had DNA back then.
1: After Ken Jacobson left the OSBI, he eventually started working as a security guard for a company in Dallas. He still lives in the area, but Jacobson never did let go of the case. It's
4: amazing to me the interest that has continued in this case. Um, I, you know, the calls got further apart, but, but uh, somebody would would always call and, you know, would say, what do you think about this thing? Did you look at this and all that? No. This one kind of, this one kind of absorbs you.
1: Yeah.
4: And, uh, you know, the further you get into it, the further you want to get into it. And, uh, you know, I, I had an awful time letting go of it uh, way past, the 1990 trial, and uh, every time I just about get get it out of my head, or most mostly out of my head, you know, somebody'd call and say, "We got a guy that you know thinks he's got the gun, and you know, all this
1: stuff." In fact, for 20 years, he, the initial investigator and pursuer of justice, kept a single shell casing in an envelope, one he picked up while walking the fields after finding the bodies of Cheryl and Dave. Because of his mistrust in the intentions of other officers as the case unfolded through the years, Jacobson held on to it until he presented it in 1990 as the lone remaining piece of evidence.